Hi, New Life. Um, thanks so much for having me. It's always an honor and a privilege to be able to open up God's Word, but all the more because it's New Life. Um, this is a place that for many years I've called home. I met the Lord at this church. I met my wife at this church, and I've met my closest friends at this church. I'm very thankful for all that God has done for me uh, through the ministry of New Life. Uh, so every time I come back, it feels like I'm home in a sense. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Matt. Um, I'm married to my lovely wife, Jane, who's not with us today. I work uh, at Sydney Chael Church. I look after the English ministry there. Um, yeah, and it's a privilege to be invited to pr preach God's word for you today. So if you have your Bible open at Psalm 24, um, I understand that you guys are in the middle of a series. Uh, so this is, a, I guess, a, a special one-off sermon. Uh, but we're going to look at a psalm together today, Psalm 24. Um, and if you have uh, your Bible open there, it, it's going to be good because we're going to go through uh, this awesome psalm together. But before we do, why don't we ask God to help us understand his word? So I'm actually going to invite you to pray. So why don't you pray and ask God to speak to you through this psalm today in a way that you can understand. So why don't you make that your prayer? Let's pray. Our gracious God, um, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and we thank you that you speak to us so clearly uh, through your word. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word today, this psalm, and we thank you that you will speak to us through this psalm. Father, as we look um, at this psalm today, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, that you would give us and what we are not, that you would make us. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, 19 years ago, in the States, in America, 19 years ago, there was a man called Timothy Treadwell, and he took his girlfriend into a national park in Alaska because he wanted to show her his favorite animal, the grizzly bear. Timothy Treadwell, he had a fascination for grizzly bears for as long as he can remember. He devoted his life to studying them. He studied all about their characteristics, and he even lived among them during the summer. He thought he knew all about these animals. He thought he knew what he was getting them into. Unfortunately, the couple never made it out alive. Treadwell and his girlfriend were killed by a grizzly bear. He thought he knew what he was getting them into. He thought he knew what they were dealing with when actually he had no idea what he was getting them into. So friends, I want to ask you this morning, as Christians, when we come before God, do we know who we're dealing with? Each Sunday morning, as we gather together as a church family, as we focus our attention on God for an hour or so, do we really know who we're dealing with? Our God is not dangerous uh, in the same way that a grizzly bear is dangerous, but Psalm 24 tells us that he is Yahweh, the King of glory. The Bible speaks of God as a warrior, as a warrior who crushes his enemies, 
a God who is perfectly holy and just. Sometimes we read about God wiping out entire nations, sometimes even his own people. The Bible tells us that God, Yahweh, is the Holy One of Israel. He is the judge. He is the all-consuming fire. And I say that because I think the temptation for us as Christians is to think of God as a mere convenience. I wonder if sometimes we approach God as if he's some kind of a divine vending machine. You know, you pop in some coins, out comes a drink. When things aren't going our way, I wonder if we approach God, pop in some prayers, out comes results. I wonder, for those of us especially who've been in church for a long time, I wonder if we only approach God when we want something from him. Like if something's not going our way or if we're applying for that new job, or if someone we love is very sick. Maybe we start living our lives as if God exists to serve us and not the other way around. Well, the writer of this psalm didn't see God as a divine vending machine. The writer of this psalm didn't see God as a mere convenience. In this psalm, God is portrayed to us as the king of glory. And in this psalm, we're going to see three things about this king of glory. If you like structure, it's going to be a three-point sermon. We're going to see three things. Why, how, and who. Firstly, why. Why we should worship the king of glory, verse 1 and 2. Secondly, how. How we should worship the king of glory, that's verse 3 to 6. And thirdly, who. Exactly who is this king of glory. And we'll see that in verse 7 to 10. Three points. Why, how, and who. So let's get in there. Firstly, why? Why should we worship the King of Glory? Well, the answer is we worship the King of Glory because He is the creator of the world. We worship the King of Glory because He is the creator of the world. Look with me in your Bibles at Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2 says this, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. So why should we worship the king of glory? We should worship the king of glory because he's the creator of the world. Yahweh, the king of glory, is the creator of the world. Now, to give you some context to this psalm, the background to this psalm, uh, the context of this psalm is most probably King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, its final home, its final resting place. It's a big deal. Uh, as you may know, the Ark of the Covenant, it showed to the people of God visibly the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was quite literally the presence of God among God's people. So you've got to think about this special occasion here. This was a unique and a special occasion where the Ark of the Covenant or the presence of God was being installed in Israel's royal city. A lot of Bible commentators and historians, they agree that this could have been the greatest day in King David's life. What a day. And in this psalm, the psalmist, the author, King David, he's most concerned with Yahweh. Yahweh is on his mind. In this psalm, the focus is purely on Yahweh. Yahweh is central to this poem. Yahweh is the emphasis of this psalm. And we know that because in the original Hebrew text, the Yahweh, the word Yahweh comes first. In verse 1, it starts like this. The Lord owns the earth. 
The Lord founded it. So if you look at ancient Hebrew literature, usually the most important thing is the first thing that comes out in the song or the poem. So according to verse one, the whole earth belongs to God, but not only the earth, but everything and everyone on the earth belongs to God. But why? Why does everything belong to God? It tells us verse two. Verse two, because he, God, laid its foundations on the seas and he established it on the rivers. Application. So tonight at sunset, as you go for a walk around your neighborhood and you look up at the beautiful night sky, you need to tell yourself, God made this. He owns this. He owns me. As you go to work this week and you hang out with your workmates, as you go back to uni and you see your uni friends, you need to tell yourself, all of this, everyone belongs to God. Some of them don't know it yet, but all of them belong to God because he created them. He is the great maker, so he owns and controls everything. He has complete authority over that which he has created. And that's the first thing we see in this psalm. Why? Why should we worship the king of glory? Well, verse one and two, because he's the creator of the world. Now logically, now having affirmed the creative power and the supreme authority of Yahweh, the psalmist now turns his gaze on the creature who seeks to worship that creator. So the second point is this, how? How should we worship the king of glory? Well, according to verse four, we are to worship the king of glory with clean hands and a pure heart. Friends, you see, this psalm was originally written to be read in a liturgical way, call and response. Some churches have liturgy in their service. This was a liturgical psalm where the priest would say one line and the people of God would respond with the next line. So with that in mind, look at verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4, the priest would ask, verse 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Verse four, the people of God would respond with one voice, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. So in verse one and two, the psalmist has told us exactly who this king is. He's the owner of everything because he's the creator of everything. Now, assuming verse one and two, verse three and four, he goes on to tell us the standards of this king. That's why the question goes, who may ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who's good enough to be in the presence of this God? The questions there in verse three, they're asked by the priests and the intention behind the question is to cause the hearer, to cause the listener to reflect humbly on their own spiritual state and to reflect humbly on their need for repentance and their need for divine mercy. So this liturgy, it functions like a solemn confession of dependence on the merciful and the kind grace of Yahweh. And all the Israelites knew, all of God's people knew that the only one who could stand in Yahweh's holy presence was the one who was pure inside and out. Look at what it says, the one with clean hands and a pure heart, inside, outside. The person who has not appealed to what is false, the person who has not sworn deceitfully. Uh, the term clean there, it can also be translated as innocent. So clean hands or innocent hands would refer to those who are free of guilt. It's talking about the people who are blameless in their actions. It's an outward, uh, outward expression of character and righteousness and integrity. Then a pure heart, 
It shifts the issue of righteousness and holiness from the outside to the inside, going from the external actions of a person to the inward nature of that person, who this person is on the inside. So this psalm is call and response, and whenever there's call and response, you're listening a lot, right? So this psalm, it would function to remind the people, everyone, everyone gathered there, it would remind them that right relationship with God is determined not by obedience to an external law alone, but also by integrity, but who you are inside, righteousness, inside and outside. Just like God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. So look at verse four and six, verse four to six. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The person who is righteous inside and outside, the one who is loyal to his covenant God, the person who holds firmly onto truth, he is the one who can expect to receive blessings from Yahweh. And those people who strive to live this life of holiness and integrity before God. Verse six, such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, a quick side note here, uh, verse five and six might seem to suggest that this is something we might qualify for, right? It might seem to suggest that this is something we can earn with our character and our deeds, but it must be said, even those under the old covenant knew that their approach to God must first be preceded by a blood sacrifice. They all knew that. So, for their sin, the cost was a life, blood sacrifice. And for that, they had to look to God, who is their savior, the God of his salvation. That's what it says there. So in this psalm, it is God who is holy, it is God who provides them with atonement. It is God who is, quote, their salvation. Friends, the point of verse three to six is not moralism. We need to get that clear. The point of verse three to six, it's not perform your best so that God's holiness doesn't kill you. The purpose of verse three to six is to show the Israelites and to show us in turn who we are worshiping. This is a king of glory. These Israelites need to know that he is holy. He is Yahweh. So that's the second point. How? How should we worship the king of glory? We should worship this king of glory with right actions and attitudes. We should worship the king of glory with a love for truth and with loyalty to the king. So a quick recap. So far, this psalm has shown us, firstly, why we should worship the king of glory, verse 1 and 2. Secondly, how we should worship the king of glory, verse 3 to 6. Thirdly, this psalm shows us the identity of this king of glory. It shows us who he is. The final four verses of this psalm, it functions as a liturgy of question and answer, call and response, which is performed at the temple gate, the temple, the main temple. In this liturgy, the group of men accompanying the ark, carrying and accompanying the ark, my presumption is uh, that would be King David's mighty men, mighty warriors. In this liturgy, the group of men accompanying the ark to the temple gates, they go, they stop at the entrance, and they demand entrance. 
the function of this was to emphasize the glory, the strength, the power, and the majesty of their glorious God, Yahweh. So, the repeated questions that come from within the temple courts, the question that goes like this, who is this king of glory? They're not really questions to find out who he is. They know who he is. These questions are repeated so that it intentionally delays entrance so that the claims of Yahweh can be repeated in ever more exalted form until there can be no longer any doubt that the Lord Almighty or the Lord of armies, verse 10, is the king of glory. You've got to picture it in your minds. It's King David's greatest day. Millions of people are out. What a day. All the Israelites who are saved by God's kindness are there. All of God's people are there. They're being led by the priests and also with the mighty warriors. King David and his mighty men. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they're going uphill to the temple gates. Picture this and look at verse 7 to 10. Verse 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors, that the King of glory will come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. third point, who? Who is this king of glory? Well, according to the psalm, the king of glory is Yahweh, God, strong and mighty, strong in battle, the captain of the angelic hosts, the master, the creator, the holy one of Israel, the vindicator, the savior, Yahweh. This is the holy one of Israel, the king of glory. In verse 7, you'll notice that the gates are instructed to lift up their heads. Obviously, that's metaphoric language. It's a sign of joyful anticipation and hope. It's kind of like if your friend is sad and downcast, and you might say something like lift your chin or lift your head. It's similar language. It's announcing, not just to the temple guards, but it's announcing to all of God's people this glorious message that God has returned. He's come back home to his people. It's declaring and displaying to all the worshippers, to a whole assembly of God, that their God is here. They've waited for this day. They've longed for this day. They've cried for this day. They've prayed for this day. And it's finally here. In this psalm, the coming of Yahweh is combined with that weighty anticipation of judgment on the earth. The psalmist tells us Yahweh's coming will either result in great rejoicing for those who depend on him and seek him rightly, or it will result in judgment for those who do not. Quick recap. This psalm, it magnifies the king of glory by showing us three things. Firstly, why we worship. Secondly, how we worship. And thirdly, who this king of glory is. But Matt, you might ask, what does this mean for my life? You've told me a bunch of things about the Israelites. You've told me a bunch of things about the Ark of the Covenant. But how does this apply to me in 2022 in Sydney? Friends, the thing is this. This psalm, it describes to us the royal procession of the Ark of the Covenant to the temple. Catch this. They were in a procession then, 
Christian, we are in a procession now. But for us today, it is now no longer the Ark of the Covenant which leads God's people in procession, but for us as Christians, it's now Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who leads his redeemed people in, law, in royal procession to the dwelling place of the living God. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 2, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Friends, it is now Jesus Christ who leads us in triumphal procession because he has conquered Satan, our enemy, and he has delivered you and me from the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. In the Old Testament, it was the ark presence of God which led the royal procession to the temple in Jerusalem. But now, it is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who leads his people in royal procession to the new Jerusalem, to the eternal temple. Our Lord Jesus is leading us not to a physical building, but to a temple made out of living stones, according to Peter. A temple made out of you and me, the new Jerusalem, heaven. Right at the end of the Bible, John writes this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Church, do you see? Can you hear? It is Jesus Christ who leads us in royal procession. So, when the voice from within the new Jerusalem cries out, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place. We, the bride of Christ, the church, we shall respond with one voice, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who has clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus, who has not appealed to what is false and who has never sworn deceitfully and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we will say along with this psalmist, we have received blessing from Yahweh. We have received righteousness and vindication from the God of salvation, not because of our righteousness, but because of his righteousness. And together, friends, we will enter the new Jerusalem, not because of our works, but because of Jesus' works on the cross for us. New life. We have received tremendous blessings and mercy and grace and love in spite of our sinfulness. But by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to him. We have been brought into this royal procession. So, what will our response be? I hope it'll be something similar to the words of this psalm. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors, then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? Jesus Christ, strong and mighty. Jesus Christ, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, you ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is he, this King of glory? Jesus Christ, the captain of the angelic host, the Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. So then, friends, may I ask you again, when we gather together each Sunday morning, when we meet with God in our quiet times, do we know who we're dealing with? We are dealing with a majestic God who's the creator of heaven and earth. We are dealing with a God who is the alpha and the omega. He has no beginning, he has no end. We are dealing with a God who is the all-consuming fire, infinite in power, but gentle and generous in his love toward us. A God who is so holy, but a God who is so loving that he would give his one and only son, Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Church, this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel which proclaims that sinners can find forgiveness with God as they come before him and bow the knee. As sinners, as non-Christians, come to Jesus and as they receive his offer for forgiveness and new life and eternity with him. The gospel which proclaims no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you've been with, no matter what your darkest shameful secrets are, you can come before God and you can find forgiveness there. The God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. The God who loves you so much that he will meet you where you're at. A God who meets your righteousness because you are not righteous. A God who gifts us with his very own spirit and makes us more like Jesus. Friends, this is the gospel. This is a reason why we exist as a church. This is a reason why we sing songs of praise. This is a reason why we read our Bibles at home. This is the reason why we invite our friends to church. This is the reason why we invest in discipleship and cross-cultural missions. This is the reason why we send people to Bible college. This is the reason why small groups and accountability are so important because of the gospel. The gospel. New Life, my hope and prayer for us as Christians is that as we hear these words of God, as we reflect on who he is, and as we do church with one another, that we will be radically inspired to live for the King of glory. Let's pray. King of glory, we come before you humbly, amazed that you would love us, amazed that you would give us your one and only son to live the perfect life that we could not live and to die a sinner's death on the cross on our behalf. Father, we thank you that the creator of the universe has become flesh to save people like us. Father, we thank you that we can find forgiveness and new life and eternity in you. Father, we thank you that even though we are not righteous, you make us righteous by the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you that we can stand before you as a forgiven people, filled with gratitude, filled with gospel hope and eternal satisfaction. Father, we ask 
that you would help us to know you rightly. Help us to know you as you are. And Lord, we pray that by your word and by your spirit, that you will teach us to respond to you with our lives every single day of our lives. Father, we pray that you would use us as individuals and as a church to bring Jesus much glory, honor, and fame. And these things we pray in his name. Amen.